Well, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And uh, it's been a while, Brad, but uh, we're back at it. Uh, Going to record another series of uh, installments here for the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. Well, needless to say, uh, COVID and staying home and having kids around and all that stuff has uh, added complications to everybody's life, including ours. And and so we've had the difficulty of trying to figure out uh, how to do our educational programming all online and, and what do you do and what don't you do and how do you uh, change the format and all that kind of stuff. And so we've been kind of preoccupied with a lot of those things. And so, yeah, it's, it's good to be finally getting back with our podcast schedule. Yeah, and you bring up a good point too. I think Brad, with uh, typically we'd run into each other at various uh, programmatic events and things happening throughout the state throughout the uh, the fall and winter season. And at those kind of uh, events, it's it's easy enough to to grab a person or two and cut a couple podcasts right right wherever we happen to be. You know, well, not just events, but uh, campus visits too. I know we would uh, the you and I both would participate in the nutrient management group and both be on campus and and uh, easy to grab anybody on campus. Well, campuses in general is is still shut down. Uh, um, obviously, there's uh, some limited amount of instruction going on for students and classes, but a lot of our researchers uh, that don't teach are still primarily officing from home, and so we aren't going up there right now, and there's nobody there if we did, and that's kind of also caused a lot more difficulty with coordinating schedules. Yeah, and so we're we're looking forward to things changing around. But in the interim, uh, we are going to take some opportunities to interview folks and and get them on the podcast. And so today, uh, we've got back with us Tom Hoverstad. Uh, he's a longtime uh, research scientist at the Southern Research and Outreach Center. I probably more commonly refer to it as SROC uh, there in Wasika. And so we need to welcome Tom. Good morning, gentlemen, and everyone. And so, Tom, uh, you know, you're uh, everybody kind of knows that you're you're the, you know, resident kind of weed scientist, do a lot of work with uh, herbicide evaluations and, and, and weed uh, kind of research. Um, but your your role is much larger than that. And today uh, we were hoping to sit down and chat a little bit about um, the uh, corn hybrid trials that you manage as well as some of the other corn uh, research work that you've been involved with over the years and so i don't know tom do you want to take a minute and and just talk a little bit about the program sure i can do that uh like you said uh well i just just last week i became the senior staff member here at the southern research and outreach center we had a Longtime employee in dairy retired on January, or, uh, January 15th. And that makes me the longest tenured staff member at the Southern Research and Outreach Center here in Wasika now. So I guess with that comes a lot of added responsibility. I don't know. But I've been here quite a while. I started in 1982. And you're right, Ryan. I, I'm my responsibilities are to take care of the agronomy research that is being done here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center. And we've had a long history of weeds that really came from uh, when farmers wanted some work done or had questions. Uh, nine out of ten times it was how to control a certain weed and 
we're still about at that level. We still have, we're still battling weeds, but we had facilities and a long-term history of studying weeds. So naturally weeds became a big responsibility for what I do here. But in addition to that, we have uh, any agronomy research that the university needs done in the southern part of the state. We have small grain trials. We have the soybean breeders and the corn breeders and a lot of the graduate student thesis work that is done here. And this morning, I think we're going to talk more about the corn trials. Um, this, the, we've worked with corn trials for a long time. And way back, uh, the university for the State Department of Agriculture used to do a maturity trial. They had about 15 sites across the state that they would grow. Any hybrid registered for sale in Minnesota had to enter these maturity trials. The Department of Ag had some standard relative maturity checks that they compared these to. And that work uh, went on until the Department of Ag kind of stopped funding that because there were so few that really violated their where they fit in their maturity class. Most seed companies were selling things that fit right into the maturity class that they labeled it. So that work wasn't being done anymore. And as part of that, the corn breeding program used to do what they called their elite hybrid trial, where they would take input from all the companies that sell corn in Minnesota, seed corn, and they would enter it into what they called their elite hybrid test. And that was part of the corn breeding program. Well, about the time Dale Hicks was uh, ready to retire and faculty changes on campus, that wasn't really what faculty were being graded on. It didn't lead to any publications that faculty could use for tenure. And Dale Hicks felt strongly that we still needed as the university to provide some information for corn growers across the state. He wanted to continue these trials and he said, uh, Tom, I think you can do it. I think you can lead this task. So we've been the, the main center for the Minnesota Corn Performance Test, we call it now. We take care of it here in Waseca. We have uh, an individual that really works very hard on that trial. He uh, plants all the trials for us. We go as far north as Crookston and our southern locations include Waseca, Rochester, and the experiment station in Lamberton, our central zone. We work with the school district in Hutchinson, have a site there, and we use the Research and Outreach Center in Morris. In our northern test, uh, we work with the Central Lakes College at Staples. We have a site by Rothsay, and we also go to the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. So nine trials across the state uh, testing whatever hybrids the industry sends to us that they'd like to see. So, so Tom, that's pretty wild. I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, back in the day, so to speak, that uh, people would be selling a corn hybrid that didn't meet the kind of the relative maturity standard that you would have to kind of test that. Um, that's, uh, it's kind of wild. I know we see that sometimes with 
Well, we look at soybean varieties and, and SEN resistance, varieties that are labeled as resistant. Occasionally, you'll find one that isn't very resistant. But to think about that from a maturity in corn sense, uh, it just seems pretty wild. I guess uh, if you remember back to that time, what kind of discrepancies would you find with, with that trial? Well, that was back when, when there was a standard 90, 95, 100, 105, all hybrids were classified in increments of five. And so, uh, you know, those old pioneer numbers carried either a hundred or a 105 day tag. And I think way back that was probably adequate when most farmers were producing feed for the farm and any grain they had for sale was more a bonus that they produced more than their animals needed. And we started transitioning to where most people, you know, far, farmers were crop farmers and they were, they were growing corn for profit to, uh, as a cash crop. And, and then we started talking about things like it's an early 105 or a late 100. So there was a need to really break that down more. And now you'll see we have 99 day, we have 103 day, we have 105 day. It's all relative, but uh, it's a little more descriptive than and we had very few that really didn't come within. It had to come within a certain like four four percent moisture of that standard hundred and five, and there just wasn't many that violated that because uh, people didn't want that. Uh, it was it was not what the industry wanted to put out there as a hundred and five that that violated the maturity because uh, people wouldn't grow that anymore. Well, there used to be a lot more exaggerated performance uh, in in those uh, length of maturities too, didn't there? I mean. I seem to remember um, there being an awful lot of emphasis on wanting to grow as long a season as possible um, because of yield, whereas it seems now we get a lot of things that are in that 95-day range that perform just as well as things that are 103, 105, uh, which allows for, for more flexibility on selecting products. Well, there's no question that the industry has worked hard on those earlier than 105 day corns and they've made some some great strides in that knowing that that's the market that the cash corn farmers wanted they they were interested in getting started on harvest in early october they were interested in spreading out their harvest season so they wanted some of those to perform well and be ready early in the season so let's uh let's think about yield or talk about yield over the years uh you know, we, we talk about trend line averages and increases year after year with the uh, new hybrids coming out. If you remember back, uh, where were you kind of at in terms of an average when you started uh, evaluating these or when you, you stepped in the role to evaluate, I guess? Well, I stepped into the role about 19, uh, somewhere in the early 1990s or mid 1990s, but I've got data from Wasika on the same trial back to 1978 and uh, I've got every year and I, I update that every year and we're doing it on the same piece of ground with other than a new planter all the same practices uh, we're, we really haven't changed anything we we use a, a crop rotation of our typical it's in our corn plot area. We grow uh, corn plots, follow that with a bulk corn crop, 
then a soybean crop, and on the third year we go back into corn. So it's a corn, 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 soybean rotation. The plot year being the year following soybeans. We've done that consistently since 1978 on the same piece of ground with the same drainage. Uh, I'm not going to say we over fertilize, but we fertilize to keep these. Remember, the goal is to get at genetic yield potential. And I mean, I, we don't dump the nitrogen on it to make it sky high. We we use uh, judicial practices. This is corn following soybeans, and I typically put on about 160 pounds of N. So we try to make nitrogen not a limiting factor. That's not what we want. We want to try to get at the genetic potential of these. So I've got data back to 1978, and if it's pretty much a straight line yield increase of just about two and a quarter bushels per acre per year. And that is... Uh, Pretty consistent with if you, I've downloaded the state data, I've downloaded Waseca County data from the ag statistics and that two bushel per acre per year is uh, pretty consistent. I think Jeff Coulter looked at a publication that was done in uh, southern Ontario that looked at a lot of locations and they were just under two bushels, but that is what I think the genetic yield gain for corn is for southern Minnesota. I would put it right at two and a quarter bushels per acre per year. So, Tom, there's been a lot of conversation over the, the last couple decades about what the genetic cap is for corn. How high could it possibly go? If you look at those, uh, those trend lines, uh, um, where, where do you see it headed in uh before things are going to plateau or there's going to have to be some major uh, genetic breakthroughs before something happens? Well, there could be a major genetic breakthrough. If, and I've done this too. I've plotted corn yields way back to when the state started keeping track of this back in roughly 1880. And there's really only one curve in that line and it's when hybrid corn, when we went from open pollinated corn to hybrid corn in in a span of from the 1930s to the 1950s, that thing really curved. And we've been on a very straight line since that. So, the yeah, others talk about the genetic potential. I think if you look at the genetic potential of each corn plant, I think the potential is about 500 bushels per acre. Um, I don't. It's, if you project out, I don't know how long it'll take us to get there, and not, certainly not in our lifetimes, but uh, I think what's happening is we keep breeding for corn that does better at higher populations. If you take some of the corns that we grew in 1978 and put them out there at 35,000 plants per acre, um, you'll see them perform very poorly, much more poorly than they would have if back when we planted at 25, 26,000 back in those days. So, so how has that changed over the years? Uh, if you look back at uh, various time periods, your planting population. I, I did fail to mention that. We, we, do, we do move that up. When I started, 27.7 was kind of our magic population. Then we went to about 31, then 33. Right now we're at 36,000. And that pretty much hits the sweet spot for what a lot of, 
I think if you take advice from your seedsman, you know, you're interested in a specific hybrid and say, they may have more information than we do and say, they might say, this one does better at higher populations. This one maybe doesn't, but uh, I think 36 kind of captures what most people are shooting for. It seemed to me like uh, early in my career, uh, there was a lot more emphasis on on uh, trying to get the plant to put on a second ear like it does where it's on the edge of the field where it gets full sunlight um, versus now where we're just simply shooting populations and just saying one ear per stalk and and that's about it. Although I would I would say as uh, from my position as a soil scientist, I I tend to wonder if if maybe uh, two ears on a stalk might have been a better strategy, but uh, I don't know. Is that is that something uh, uh, you're able to speak to, Tom, or is that more of a plant breeder kind of a thing? I think you'd have to talk to a plant physiologist about that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's really about uh, it's really about plants per acre and kernels per acre and weight per kernel and. The trials, I mean, they do so much research on maximizing how you can get the most out of each plant. And whether it puts on another ear or not, I think is kind of gets lost in the wash. I hear a lot of talk about flexed ear and fixed ear hybrids, and I've never really bought into that philosophy. I mean, I think all corn can be a flexed ear. Brad, you do a lot of nitrogen work, and I mean, any corn can put on a nubbin. There's no question about that. So I, uh, I really don't put a lot of stock in what, and I don't hear a lot about it anymore. We used to hear a lot about that. This one flexes its ear size. This one doesn't. I think, uh, I think the breeders have really bred for corn that performs well at ever increasing populations. And that's where our genetic yield gain is coming from. So Tom, kind of going back to, to my days back when I used to be a county agent, uh, one of the things I used to hear farmers, I don't know if I'd say it was a complaint and, and maybe it was a bit of a complaint or, or sort of a criticism. And you already referenced the fact that the seed companies select the varieties, the hybrids to enter in the trial. And I would hear farmers say every year they'd look at the numbers and they'd say, this is all new stuff and I have no idea uh, what any of this is. Um, and then they kind of griped that by the time those, those numbers uh, got popular, they weren't in the trials anymore. What, uh, what's, uh, what should a farmer be thinking about with respect to looking at the, um, the, the yields in the variety trials and then kind of looking at what they are actually growing that might have been tested a couple of years prior? Well, that's a good point. Um... We in research, and you guys with uh, a lot of the work you do, and even the weed trials, you know, we, we always try to get multiple year data. And that really makes your conclusions a lot better when you can, when you can study nitrogen rates over several years. Well, if you want to look at the same hybrid in these trials for three years, you've already lost over seven and a half bushel per acre just by what the gains are every year and what's coming out every year. So it's hard to get multiple year data. That's why I would look at multiple location data. And 
not only include our trials, but uh, use ours to find some that you're interested in. Take those, note them down, try to go to some county corn grower plots, go to the Minnesota Corn Growers, have a very good website that you can look at a lot of trials across the state. There's the first trials. So I think instead of looking at multiple years, we need to be looking at multiple locations and multiple trials and multiple sources of information and try to, try to find one that doesn't fail. I think it's as important to note if one has a failure as it is to note which one wins the plot. So sometimes it's, uh, it's a matter of not picking the winners, but picking the ones that are not failures might be as good a strategy as anything. And one of the other things that I, I know f from back in those days, uh, working with, with farmers, looking at those numbers is you'd see uh, a number pop up and do just spectacularly at one site. And it would be something, I guess, for lack of a better term, a bit unusual, uh, a small company or, or something you wouldn't expect. And then it would be kind of lackluster everywhere else. Uh, how do you interpret those results or, or what, what do you, what can you make of it when you see that in the, the numbers? Well, that is, that is one of the first things I learned when I started working closely with these trials. Remember, this is back in the day when Pioneer probably had 80, maybe 90% market share and everything Anything anybody did, they, they wanted to compare it to Pioneer. How did it do compared to Pioneer? And, and that was the way things were then. But there's been a lot of vertical integration in the seed industry. There's been a lot of, you know, a lot of access. And one of the first things that I learned when we started working on this is that some of these other companies had access to very good genetics. And you would find that they had one that would that would really do well and maybe it didn't last that long and those kind of but i found out that some of these companies that were not the top tier had some pretty good numbers out there and i think that has been reflected in what you see in the in the field now there's a there's a lot of people growing a lot of different genetics and there isn't really one that everybody says, how did it do compared to this one? Because uh, we've got a lot of good numbers out there. That's, that's always been the case. There's always been these, these foundation seed companies that uh, had access to good genetics, but they just didn't quite have the, the market share. And now they do, and they're, they're producing some pretty good products. So curious, Tom, uh, you mentioned your, your rotation on these sites are two years of corn and then soybeans. So that, that second year of corn, when you bulk crop it, are you using your, uh, your results from the hybrid trial to pick one to put out there? Or? Oh, sure. We, we, you know, the experiment station here has, we have about 650 acres of cropland and in any one year, less than 200 are in research plots. That means there's four or 500 acres that we need to do the best job we can because we have a dairy unit here, we have a swine unit here, 
It is our responsibility to raise feed for those units. So we take the information that we get, try to try to plant the hybrids that are doing well in our trials, and and that's uh, that's how we pick hybrids, and and we keep moving keep moving along. And I think our corn yields on the uh, what we call bulk acres are increasing just like the corn yield trials. Well, I was just going to say one of the the areas that I deal with uh, have been dealing with a fair amount lately. It's one of the biggest trends in agriculture is the push to establish cover crops, and there's been a lot made of uh, the fact that the corn crop is our kind of our longest season crop and extraordinarily difficult to. Uh, establish a cover crop by the time corn harvest is over just simply because of the calendar date. Um, and then there's been a lot of conversation about potentially just growing shorter season corn, getting it out earlier and trying to get cover crop established. Do you see the potential for say 90 day or even 85 day corn ever being competitive enough that uh, the the uh, payback of getting a cover crop in there and the benefits that would gain would make up for yield difference in, in say, a 102-day hybrid? Well, that's an interesting point. I, I, think there's, I think there would be interest in that. The interest in cover crops is, is really on an upward trend. But here's something I've learned in my experience. Um, those really early hybrids, 85 days, say for example. I see a lot of them and we even use them. We use them in our trials. I put some 80 day in some of our border plots as a marker. So when I'm out there looking at the plots, especially later in the year, I can find those. You know, they tassel much earlier. They're, they're mature much earlier. It really makes a good marker to find out where you are in the plots as you're walking around because there's thousand some plots out there. So they're nice to have, but they never do well. 85-day corn here in Wasika, 130, 140 bushels is what I'd expect. And it, it's nice because then we get the data. You can find those plots. So you know that you know that you're on, if the plot that was 1201 was an 80-day and it yielded 130 bushels, you know you're spot on with, with your data. But you take those... 85 days up to staples. They don't even look the same. I see the same numbers up there and they have a nice ear. They look terrific. And I, I can't believe, I can't believe it's the same corn. So there's something about the day length, uh, something about how they grow and corn hybrids are, they're bred and tested and released in the areas that they're adapted to do well. So I don't see planting 85-day corn. I think the yield penalty for that would be too much to offset the benefits of cover crops. Now, let's think about other things that breeders can do. Can they, can they develop some hybrids that maybe lose their lower leaves earlier? What, I mean, there's, the sky's the limit on what, if you've got an idea, some breeder can figure out how to do it. I, that was proof when somebody said, what if Roundup, what if we could spray Roundup on soybeans? Well, somebody figured out how to do it, and it was probably the biggest revolution we've been through. So if, if there's a market for it, someone can figure out how to make a corn that'll do that. But as far as uh, going to 85-day, I kind of hate to say it in this day and age, but, but those hybrids don't belong here. 
And uh, they do well in some places, but my motto is don't plant any earlier than 95 day here in the southern part of the state. They just, they didn't, they never pan out. So Tom, you've done quite a bit of work with looking at planting dates and, you know, we get these weird situations where we, we get too much rain and, and soil conditions aren't fit to plant and we end up in delayed planting situations or replanting in some cases. Um, how do you, how do you kind of uh, relate those maturities with the planting date kind of study? Do you, can you expand on that at all or, or fill us in what you've found? Yes, I've, I've looked at planting date virtually every year, and I've got a feeling about planting corn here in southern Minnesota. Now, historically, and it still remains true, that early planting is better corn. There's no question about that. But let's step back a minute and think about why that is, okay? Early planted corn, of course, takes advantage of a short season here in Minnesota. So, I mean, we need to capture as much of the season as we can. That remains unchanged. The other thing is, our rainfall pattern has changed significantly in the past 50 years. Most of the time when, when I was a kid, we would see dry spells in the summer. And especially after the first of August, most every year the lawns turn brown and things got dry. Well, if corn, if corn is trying to pollinate in those conditions, we can suffer some yield losses. So historically, we planted early to avoid the potential for some of that late season drought that would cause pollination problems. But our rainfall pattern has changed enough that we rarely see those really dry conditions anymore. And I think that gives us more latitude to plant a little bit later in the spring. And if you look at the season, um, we really don't miss a lot of growing degree units, say planting from April 20th to May 10th. It's it really, you don't miss that much of the season. When we do run into trouble, with late planted corn is when we have a cool summer all year and even an early frost. And, th and that possibility still remains. So certainly planting early is still a good thing to do, but I would weigh, I wouldn't rush it anymore in this day and age. I would, I would wait for better conditions because corn seed is a major investment now, um, rushing it to try to get it planted when I think uh, you could wait a few days and get just as good a crop, I think is has been a benefit to corn growers here in southern Minnesota. So on the flip side then, so, you know, we got, you throw around the 50 degree mark for a target temperature to, to as far as soil to get good germination and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, how on the flip side how early is too early and are you concerned with that or are you more in the camp that seems to be developing with when conditions are right you know start planning provided we've made the insurance date and whatnot uh what are your thoughts on on that kind of aspect you know is there is there a too early or is it more of a condition i think the conditions 
ought to be the main motivator. Like you mentioned, I think a lot of growers take crop revenue coverage, insurance, and there's a date when you shouldn't be out there before that. Um, but I've heard I've heard a lot of talk in the industry about this cold cold water imbibition. And so here's what you're not supposed to do. You're plant corn into dry soil and then get a cold rain on it. They call that cold water imbibition and they say it's bad for seed. Well, I've seen it both ways. I've done a lot of planting date trials over the years and one day it was about April 20th. It was it was warm. We'd had some a string of 70 degree days and the soil it was sunny and it was warm out there, but the forecast was bad. It was going to rain, it was going to snow. But we went ahead and planted because that's what we do. I mean, I've got target dates and I want to hit them. And, and if we're going to see those conditions, I'd like to know about it. So we planted corn and it did. It, we finished. It was uh, sleep pellets were bouncing off the tractor. It was, it was a cold rain right then and there. And that's what they claim you shouldn't do. Well, that corn came up just fine. The next date was the opposite. It stayed cold for quite a while. We were planting into cold soil and lo and behold it warmed up shortly after planting and that corn came up fine too. So I think soil conditions are the overriding factor much more than soil temperatures. That's another thing I think our geneticists have done a good job on is cold tolerance in corn. I mean they they don't, the major investment you make in seed uh, they don't want having, they don't want products out there that are going to suffer with cold temperatures and, and cause replants. It's, uh, it's not good for anybody. So, so Tom, the, the years then when we have delayed planning where, you know, sometimes we just don't dry out and keep catching rain after rain and pretty soon we move into middle of May and you know, we can get some things planted potentially, but then you get more rain and, and things push later and later into May and then the dreaded June comes. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, you know, in general, I guess? Is there a rule of thumb around when we slide? Well, my rule of thumb is uh, planting corn after June 10th is risky. And we did that. That's when I learned about, you know, these 85 and 80 day corns. We did that way back. We've had some bad years. We've had some years when, I remember 2013 we had, we didn't get out in the field till June, but way back in the 1990s we had a, I don't know what year it was bad, but we had a disaster and we started, we said we need to update our planning date, late planning data. So we did a trial, we planted out till about June 10th and we planted 80, 85 day corn and it didn't do any better than the 95 days. So that's when I kind of learned, I said, 95 is kind of as early as I would go for our part of the state. And we planted right up till June 10th. And you can get a crop that it's, it's certainly a curve. And, you know, planting corn up till about May 5th uh, really maximizes genetic yield potential. We start to lose a little bit every day when you get past May 5th, and it's that curve just keeps going down. You know, maybe on May 5th, you're losing about a tenth of a bushel per acre per day. By the end of May, it's more like 
two bushels per acre per day. And then getting out to June 10th, I'd put it more like two and a half bushels per acre per day. So take all that uh, off what you think you could produce. And by the time you get past June 10th, you're penciling out. The best I could do is 130 bushels. Is it even worth planting? And that's that's kind of how we, how I would look at it. Look at what you could grow and and uh, realize that after June 10th, it's going to be hard to make a crop. Although, you know, there's still silage potential for those people that need that. There, there is some feed value in that, but corn is a cash crop. June 10th, you got to be looking at taking the prevent plant is kind of what a lot of people decided to do that year. That, uh, I, I do from that, that nineties episode, the, uh, uh, or year, I should say, uh, you hear talk about the triple 40 corn with 40 bushels and 40 pounds and 40% moisture. And I, you know, I don't know if you recall that, but, uh, I, I've heard that thrown around as a, as a term with certain folks and they, they kind of bring that up anytime you uh, you do end up getting delayed into June, and I even I even threw one more forty in there. It was it was uh, forty bushel per acre, forty percent moisture, and when you hauled it to town and paid all the dockage, it was worth forty cents a bushel. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's not somewhere we want to be, but uh, hopefully we uh, we have more reasonable seasons and into the future here and. Well, Brad, you got anything else you want to talk about today? No, I think we're kind of getting to the end of it, Ryan. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. And I want to uh, thank all our listeners out there for tuning in to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Mm-hmm.